0: Let's pretend it's the end of this whole ugly story We vanquished the foe and we triumphed in
1: glory There's nothing but rainbows and blue skies ahead Hallelujah, amen, it's the Welcome end. to Before the Future Came, temporarily not a Star Trek podcast. We're looking at the ideals of utopian science fiction as we voyage from one work to the next following a breadcrumb trail of motifs. This month, we're talking about The Wild Robot by Peter Brown. It's a number one New York Times bestselling chapter book for readers ages 8 to 11. I'm Gregory, and I did not know the animal language until now.
2: I'm Lucy, and death scenes are my specialty, but I have a wide dramatic range.
0: I'm Melissa, and I thought I'd come down and introduce myself, but now I'm nervous and I'm talking too much, and my name is Melissa. I think I said that already.
1: (laughs) So, last episode we discussed the novella Binti, which explored how people have to change to survive, and the relationship between language and thought. Today we're talking about the wild robot, which definitely grapples with some of those same concepts. Lucy picked it, so if you could, please give us a summary of the wild robot in your own words
2: summary from robot memory logs i don't have a date for it (laughs) and i'm not going to do the whole (laughs) thing in the robot voice although (laughs) i do enjoy robot voice (laughs) 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 all right here's the summary roz and four other robots in packing crates wash up on the shore of an island after a hurricane some otters Playing with Roz's inanimate body, accidentally turn her on, not like that, and her survival (laughs) programming sets in. She is plagued by slippery mountains, chased by bears, and scorned by the other animals who think she is a monster. After noticing how an insect camouflages itself, Roz begins hiding and observing the animals on the island, and soon she learns to speak animal languages, although this does not really help her make friends with any animals. But one day, after falling through the branches of a tree and accidentally crushing some geese and eggs, she adopts the one remaining goose egg, whose occupant believes she is his mother. She, after consulting with some other animals, also comes to believe that she is his mother. When she is caring for her adopted goose son, the other animals on the island begin to befriend Roz, and soon she has a house, a garden, and loads of friends. She even manages to befriend the fearsome bears, though she loses a foot in the process. The animals make her a wooden foot to replace it. She raises her son, Brightbill, until he learns to swim, then fly, then migrate south for the winter with the other geese. Over the winter, Roz saves as many animals as she can from the brutal cold by building lodges with fire pits. Once the winter is over, Bright Bill and his flock return with information about the outside world, where they encountered other robots and guns. Roz and the animals celebrate spring with a wild rumpus, which is observed by a passing ship. Soon a plane carrying three robots show up to collect Roz and the remains of the other destroyed robots on the island. Roz does not want to go with them, but they chase her and destroy her body, though the three pursuing robots are ultimately destroyed by the animals on the island. Do not speak to me and my son ever again though not before Roz is warned that her makers will continue pursuing her. Roz, her body completely destroyed, is loaded onto the plane, along with all of the other robot parts, to return to her makers, because she wants them to leave the island alone and she hopes to have her body repaired.
1: Excellent summary.
2: Yes, thank you.
1: This is it's this is an adorable book.
0: It is, both physically and uh the the story
1: yeah something that doesn't necessarily come across in that summary is that there are like a whole bunch of illustrations um these gorgeous i think they're digital but they kind of look like paper cutouts um and like there's at least one two page full spread that's a gorgeous when when uh there's an incident where Raz they experiment with turning Raz off and back on again and the shot oh. of of Raz in a uh, deactivated with, with uh, Bright Bill looking at her is, is just heartbreaking.
2: So good. Uh, Peter Brown actually, was, his, his books are um, mostly children's books, uh, and he, like, mean, younger children's books, picture books, uh, and he's an illustrator. Um, so that's sort of his bread and butter. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely amazing art. Uh, I'm sure it will come up
0: to varying degrees throughout all of our discussions Uh, but we have each brought a topic for discussion and mine is the relationship in this book between community and ownership, uh, particularly in sort of the broader context of it as a utopian work often in utopian when we look at utopian works and we talk about possession or ownership of land or items it's it's often talked about in contrast with whatever the writers the authors society is right Mm -hmm. so now it's now we're doing a communism or a socialism or now we're doing a very problematic reference to indigenous people or something like this right um and this book i think is particularly notable in that it doesn't have to make that contrast and it doesn't like it just doesn't there's no like unlike humans like because humans are largely removed from the narrative Mm -hmm. it is it is us that brings it that bring the comparison as we read it of oh you know uh these things are or are not owned, etc. Here's a model that applies. Oh, this is how animals do or, <laughs> or not. Uh, so I thought that was particularly interesting is that the author manages to completely kind of sidestep the question of here's an attribute about this community, it is distinct from humanity.
1: Yeah, I, um, I found myself thinking about that in there's uh, when she's getting her house and and getting her garden mm-hmm. made. There's a mm-hmm. lot of exchanges that are set up where it's like, hey, if you build me a house, I will bring... Talking to a beaver, she offers to bring a beaver trees so that they don't have to spend time cutting down trees in exchange for building a house. And, like, mm-hmm. it's not capitalist, but it is just, like, right. trade. It's just exactly. straight-up exchange of goods and services.
2: I, I would actually... I would say it's um, really similar to the... Um, Bordeauxian concept of social capital Mm. because, you know, it's originally, um, it's that goose. I can't remember Mm -hmm. loudmouth or something who is, um, who owes the beaver or the, the beaver owes the goose a favor. So the goose is like, you remind that beaver that, you know, um, I'm owed a favor Mm -hmm. and then Roz is able to help the beavers. And then, you know, she slowly accrues that social capital, Uh, And, I mean, other people maybe would just call it, I don't know, trust building. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: And I think that as there are very few things that are owned in this, even though you would kind of think that, like, there would be hoarding of resources or hoarding Mm. of something. But even when these favors are exchanged and the social capital is built, it's not it feels surprisingly lacking in transactionality right you like mm-hmm. if there were i don't know two humans in our society be like well i gave you a favor of this size now you owe me a favor of equivalent size and they even kind of joke a little bit
1: <laughs> they're transactions but they're like mutual it's it's the yes. it's like the ideal concept that people talk about of like people who are pro capitalist talk about with like oh well exchange benefits everyone and it's like Uh yeah it does and that's not a property of our current monetary system that's just like how people interact with each other
0: exactly Uh, and i think one of the interesting kind of barriers to this that gets that gets navigated is the idea of safety right Mm -hmm. like while roz is a monster quote unquote (laughs) or a threat or whatever um she does not have that social capital to be able to make those, to live in this space and share those resources, basically. Um, but as she as she kind of fills in this space and adopts a son, right, mm-hmm. um, who is also not a possession. The son is freely shared with his own species and the community at large. There's not this sort of, oh, I have something, let me keep it. Um as the barrier of safety begins to break down um so Roz becomes safe and the environment becomes safe or unsafe depending on the the season as winter comes um you know we have animals starving we have the the flock of geese are gone um Roz is able to not only open up her own home but is able to build additional homes and make space and teach teach animals fire. uh, (laughs) And (laughs) which is wild. And none of that is hoarded, right? There's no, Uh there's no, there are no strings attached to that knowledge or that those gifts. Uh, And so I, I love it. Like as much as I like uh, the property that this, show will eventually be about and that we are not discussing (laughs) it is very much caught up in contrasting itself with modern human society Uh, and so uh, i i thought this book was so sweet like it didn't have to when there was conflict it was not about it was not centered on i have something and i won't share it (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh which is refreshing
1: (laughs) and it's not like totally it's it's not a lot of talking animal stories uh make their talking animals basically just people but like this is absolutely a story that's like yeah they have this convention where like there's an hour a day where they don't where they don't fight or eat each other but like they still do eat each other the rest of the time. Like there's a line during the winter where like they they spend nights in the lodge, and there's an agreement that they won't fight or eat each other in the lodge. But like there's a line that's like, where, I I hope I noted no, I hope I noted it down.
0: Oh, let me see if I can find I,
1: it. I did not, but it's a line that's like uh, sometimes one lodger would return inside the stomach of another, and that made for some awkward conversation.
2: it comes up in their very first uh dawn meeting when um Fink is like, uh, yeah, it's almost breakfast time, you know, (laughs) that (laughs) understanding that they're about to return to predator and prey behaviors any minute. I what Lissa is talking about, uh, reminds me a lot of a novel called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Uh, I'm certain I've talked about it to you two before, yeah. but um, it's like he has this concept of levers and takers. Uh, I will say the overarching story of Ishmael is that Ishmael is a gorilla who is like teaching uh his student, um, so it is also very concerned with animals and humans as animals, and makes this sort of argument that when humans became agricultural. They became uh, takers, right? That they would want to hoard mm-hmm. and keep more things than they needed instead of being leavers who um, only took what was necessary instead of feeling like, you know, you always had to plan and save, um, which is different than animal behavior. He argues a distinction between human and animal behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm not endorsing the ideas of this book because I haven't looked up Daniel Quinn in a long time. I don't know. Maybe he's a huge problem. I did find the book really interesting when I originally read it. I could see how some of the ideas in it could be used for bad trains of thought. Yeah. Something,
0: something I was left wondering uh, is that, you know, this ostensibly Roz does not have emotions. Roz is yes. acting, right? Um, when there are scenes where Bright Bill is leaving or getting into trouble or where there are sort of more emotive reactions, um, is is Roz's ability, is Roz's lack of possessiveness a factor d- due to her lack of emotion?
1: I mean, so... First, Roz is emotionless. Like, Roz completely feels all of these things. Um, I don't, I don't know. Like, I think it's, it's her innocence, for lack of a better term. Like, Mm -hmm. Roz is a tabula rasa. She's a blank slate, right? So Mm -hmm. she doesn't remember she, I mean, she wasn't alive before she woke up on the beach with those otters. And so she, like, doesn't know about human society. And so she's Sort of playing with some of the like, it's not noble savage stuff, it's more like uh, angel descending from the heavens and living among us stuff. Um, but she yeah. like doesn't know to be selfish, is yes. some of the implication.
2: I mean, I think she's literally not a tabula rasa though, right? Because <laughs> she she's programmed, right? She has a programming like a way that she knows how to behave because of her programming, which I think would not be and uh, and just to come back to earlier when we're told she has no emotion what it says is as we all know uh-huh. yes robots do not have emotions right so i think that is very careful phrasing on the part of the author like that's to understood yes. but i think he is going to have <laughs> us explore whether that is true hmm. what are emotions right. and of course i i agree she absolutely does have emotions
1: and yeah she's she's this weird in this weird circumstance of having knowledge but no personal memories right so she can look up what fire is or what different animals are or how the 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 solar system works but she and theoretically she knows that humans exist but she doesn't seem to know that humans made her and doesn't seem to know Mm -hmm. that like she, she has no memories of anything but the island and so like She has knowledge without the identity tied to that knowledge.
0: Yeah, it's a weirdly light uh, amount of programming compared Mm -hmm. to the way we normally think of robots coming off the assembly line, knowing what their job is, Mm -hmm. knowing that they are going to go be house servants or whatever. And they didn't even give Roz that. So um, so yes, uh, community ownership, I think uh, I think this book does a very good job of just letting it sit and have you go, well, wait, shouldn't there be hoarding? Mm -hmm. And even when winter is coming, there is a collection of resources that happens by some of the animals, but it is in passing. Sort of, I don't know, I'll talk a little bit later about, you know, what's natural or Mm -hmm. not, but
1: uh... (laughs) I'm sure we'll be talking about that a lot
2: oh yeah for sure i mean actually a lot of what melissa had to say i think is going to tie in with what i'm interested in talking about uh in this novel uh which i also found to be um a real treat to read (laughs) and i look forward to reading the next two Mm -hmm. um uh so i'm gonna start just because um I'm a literature professor, and I'm actually teaching children's lit this semester. And a lot of people may not be aware that children's literature is a fairly new field. Like, it wasn't considered to be a subject worth studying for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's only a pretty recent phenomenon that you could take a class at college on children's literature. Um, you know, used to be you could only take classes on Shakespeare and, um, I don't know, World literature, Literature. (laughs) like whoever came up with all the things that we're allowed to study. Um, And now we study children's literature. um, And uh, a quote I've come across in uh, teaching my own class is C.S. Lewis, who famously noted that if only children enjoy a piece of children's literature, then the writer hasn't done a very good job. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And I think this book is... A good book for kids like i think kids will probably enjoy this uh book but i do think it has a lot of really complex things that it's toying with mm-hmm. um and i'm particularly interested in the idea of wildness um which i know why you YouTube... 2 <laughs> <laughs> we've been talking about wildness and i'm going to come back to that in a minute but i want to start with a literature perspective um in literature um uh, There is, we often talk about a dichotomy between wildness and the pastoral. So uh, what you, I guess, uh, for example, a pastoral setting would be like a lot of romantic poetry. Uh, My favorite poem is called The Daffodils by William Wordsworth. And it's a pastoral version of nature. I wandered lonely as a cloud, which floats on higher vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd. A host of golden daffodils beside the lake, beneath the trees, tumbling and dancing in the breeze. A million saw it at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. That's a very romantic version of nature. Uh, the flowers are beautiful, but you're not sneezing, right? You're not uh, inundated by like being in nature, which is very uncomfortable. Um, and if you can contrast that with wildness, and the book I always think of is that, now, um, that I was actually thinking, I don't know if it counts as a memoir. Um, it's called Into the Wild. It's about that guy who is in Alaska and he ends up dying. <laughs> he's stranded in his car. Oh. oh, wow. I'm not sure it can be called a memoir because he's dead. He couldn't have written it, but it was based on his real life. Um, and it presents a version of the outdoors where nature is a problem mm-hmm. to be solved <laughs> by a person or you defeat, you're defeated by it. Um, and, so in literary studies, this is a um, this is sometimes a thing that we think about. Uh, and I, I thought it was interesting in the note at the end of the book, Peter Brown writes about robots and animals and how he imagines that their programming and instincts aren't actually very different, which is how he came to the idea of the wild robot. Mm-hmm. Um, he was interested in that idea of instinct. And... So I'm interested in how his version of literary wildness might relate to philosophical concepts of wildness um, and to think about what he might be offering us in this narrative to help us kind of think more about a philosophical version of wildness, which I will now Uh reference Jack Halberstam's (laughs) Wild Things, The Disorder of Desire, um, because that, yeah, I'm so sorry, but I have to. You have to. I mean... (laughs) I think Halberstam is really is trying to present a philosophy of wildness. Before we
1: get into Halberstam, why are we all groaning at Halberstam?
2: We stopped reading the book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so we 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 do like it. We have a a book club (laughs) that we do where we, you know, read books and talk about them amongst the three of us. And uh, yeah, it uh, I like some of Halberstam's stuff. This one we found ourselves dreading reading. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I mean, they are trying to present an idea about wildness, um, sort of situated within queer theory, uh, and maybe sort of deconstruction, <laughs> De- deconstruction by way of Derrida. Um, but it, I think one of the things we found extremely frustrating about it was their unwillingness to pin down a definition of wildness that might be useful. Yeah. And I think we do all understand that that is the nature of queer theory and deconstruction is that definitions are difficult to pin down. Um, but it's also really challenging when, you know, we want to think as philosophers and as queer people who exist in the world, what do you do with this? Mm-hmm. Right. So so I don't think Halberstam is actually super useful um, to thinking through this book except for maybe they're both interested in uh, Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are because I definitely oh, yeah. see I oh, think yeah. both of them <laughs> are paying homage to that children's lit classic um, I know in my summary I mentioned the wild rumpus that actually isn't it does isn't called a wild rumpus in the book but it was what I immediately thought of mm-hmm. when they you know they're having this wild celebration of spring how uh, mm-hmm. the wild rumpus mm-hmm. from Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are came to my mind um, so another philosopher who, um, I'm almost loath to bring up is, um, Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, but I do think, so Brown's text does grapple a bit more literally with Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's. I can't say Nietzsche, by the way. <laughs> I want to say Nietzsche is big why. That's how I grew up. I'm from South Carolina and it's just what we say there, but I know it's not right. So I'm going to try and say Nietzsche. Um, Anyway, um, Nietzsche also doesn't differentiate between organic and inorganic life in the ways that Brown does, too. I think that's a, something that you see in, in Nietzsche. Um, I don't think Brown is endorsing that concept of will to power, um, which is really important in um, that philosopher's thinking. But it is clear that Roz and the animals do struggle for existence and their need to survive is crucial Um, here's one quote, for example, there comes for every man an hour in which he asks himself in wonderment, how is one able to live? And yet one does live an hour in which he begins to understand that he possesses an inventiveness of the same kind as he admires in plants, which climb and wind and finally gain some light and a patch of soil and thus create for themselves their share of joy on inhospitable ground. And another, he writes You aspire to free heights, your soul thirsts for the stars, but your wicked instincts, too, thirst for freedom. Your wild dogs want freedom. They bark with joy in their cellar when your spirit plans to open all prisons. Um, So I think there is a part of this writing that is about how humans instincts, right, like veer toward freedom, Mm -hmm. veer toward um, self-actualization in a way that. I, I see maybe Brown hinting toward. And I, and I would argue this is only a somewhat Nietzschean route that Brown takes to there, <laughs> to what Lissa was really talking about. This community that is essentially anti-capitalist, right? And I think is why this is, for me, sort of a utopian novel. I won't say sort of. I think this is a utopian <laughs> novel. Um, and that's four big things. One, you see that survival and joy in the community's survival, right? Mm -hmm. There's a sort of joy that comes from that survival as a community. Two, you see restorative justice. Um, Roz cares for the Gosling who she accidentally destroys, um, Bright Bill's parents and the other eggs. And instead of being punished for that, she doesn't take on punishment. Nobody punishes her. There's no prison for robots who <laughs> smash eggs. Mm-hmm. But instead, she cares for the egg and she raises the goose. That's restorative justice. I will talk about this for the rest of my life as an example of it. <laughs> and there's, um, there's,
1: there's another example of, um, I think th- this didn't end up in the summer because it doesn't actually end up being that important, but there, there's a family of bears that initially mm-hmm. the bears chase Roz, and then Roz befriends mm-hmm. the whole community, and then the bears are kind of the last to befriend Roz, and they attack her, the mm-hmm. the two child bears attack Roz, the mother stops them, and, like, immediately one of the kids ends up falling over a cliff and dangling from a branch, cartoon style, and Roz <laughs> immediately saves the kid, and the bears kind of immediately trust her to save the kid, and, like, that's a there's actually not a step of restorative justice there because the bears are the, are the ones who, who harmed Roz, but there's that feeling of like forgiveness of like, yeah. No harm, no foul sort of, sort of feeling.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's not, people are not hanging on to sort of Mm -hmm. like, I think, I think there's ways in which when we think about justice in our current world, we think about it in ways that are unhelpful because we think, Oh, you know, an eye for an eye mm-hmm, right. right and that's actually not super helpful well, what is the appropriate for, like, punishment
1: for this transgression mm-hmm.
0: what,
2: yeah what is the cost right how, how to make it right right and this is a world where people are people are, i'll say people yeah <laughs> people <laughs> make things right um i also noticed in this book Um, the impact on humans of human society on global warming and general survival. Mm -hmm. Remember the turtle Craig talks about how the winters have gotten colder and the summer's hotter. So there's an understanding of all the ways in which industrialization and capital capitalism have impacted even the planet Mm -hmm. and global warming Four, and this really loops back to what Alyssa had to say, Um, violence and death happen and, It's a cycle, right? You know, people get eaten. People die in the winter. Those things happen. But the big difference is it is only the violence of ownership that is worth being struggled against, right? When the robots come to retrieve Roz at the end, that is worth struggling against. That is worth them engaging in in struggle. It's not, you know, (laughs) these other kinds of things that happen, those are different. Um, The robots want to force Ross to come with them because because they believe that she is owned and she is not. She's not just a wild robot, but a free robot. And I think that's where Brown's definitions kind of relate to Nietzsche in a way although better than Nietzsche because, you know, Nietzsche was used very prominently by Nazis and mm-hmm. fascists. So, you know, be careful with your philosophy studies. They can go bad. Uh, and I think Brown gives us something better than Nietzsche, better than Halberstam, because I think he gives us actionable examples of joy in wildness, restorative justice, and even how to choose when to engage in that sort of generative struggle mm-hmm. Um so it's children's lit, but it reminds me so much of Mariam Kaba, famed prison abolitionist, <laughs> uh, her short story, Justice, which is about a 16-year-old dead person who observes what happens to her community in the wake of her murder. Um, and and anyway, that was a long path to why I thought this uh, novel uh, brings up anti-capitalist premises in really powerful, actionable ways.
1: Yeah, it's super cool.
2: <laughs> I might have to write an article <laughs> about it. <laughs> I might have to, i might have to send it into like Voices in the Middle or something.
1: Radical teacher.
2: <laughs> now I'm thinking I might send it into like a um, NCTE publication because I think this would—I'd write something appropriate What's for NCT? teachers. Uh, national council of teachers of english
1: so you talked about that that tension between pastoralism and wild stories um and like that those two modes of of seeing the of seeing nature in stories and i think that there's there's a subgenre where those two things touch where uh this this book at least starts the first 50 pages or so of this book are a survival story um it's a subgenre that's sort of that's adjacent to like castaway stories like Robinson Crusoe, Swiss Family Robinson, that sort of thing or The Martian. Are stories where person comes to wild place, lands, has to survive and, and escape. One of the things about those is they usually have like they're usually interfacing with indigeneity, like there's almost always a point in one of those stories where you meet a native american or a a a rival political group or or um or find out that there are pirates on the island that sort of thing but survival stories especially in children's literature are kind of a a distinct side offshoot of that so i'm thinking of uh, hatchet was the book that was real big when i was a kid um island of the blue dolphins is a classic uh there are a whole lot of these which are
2: the island of the blue dolphins
1: (laughs) (laughs) but like uh these are stories where a kid usually finds themselves alone and like in nature and like having to figure out how to fend for themselves uh until they can somehow rejoin society or or be rescued or something like that and those books often have the, the thing you see here where it's a mixture of admiring the beauty of nature in the pastoral way, but then also like encountering, you know, a bear that's trying to eat you or starvation <laughs> or eating the wrong berry and having to throw up. But those stories almost always have this sort of like settler fantasy of like, well, first, I'm going to figure out how to make fire. And then I'm going to figure out how to get shelter, and then I'm going to figure out how to hunt. And by the end, I've got this whole complex of, like, here's where I do my pottery, and here I've now conquered nature and sort of reproduced this technological system uh, in a place of nature. And this book just doesn't do that. Right, this book does the survival, does the initial survival part of oh no, I'm muddy, oh no, I'm dented, I don't want to get struck by lightning, uh, <laughs> these animals are, are attacking me or running away from me, what do I do? But then instead of of Roz going, well, I understand fire, so I need to make a fire to keep the animals away, and then I understand, uh, you know, how to make things, so I'm going to make weapons and I'm going to make a shelter. Like she uses her technological knowledge, but when she makes fire it's to warm her son when she makes a shelter it's to to you know keep herself and her son safe um and it's not a step in a in a progress towards like self-sufficiency she's i mean she's solar powered she's she is already self-sufficient and she could Mm -hmm. and does the way she learns animal language is just by like standing still and being completely camouflaged and, like, she learns how to camouflage as a skill, and then she just, like, tries camouflaging as different things. Like, <laughs> when she camouflages, she's like, now she's a tree. Now she's a rock. Now she's a something. Um, it's pretty
2: amazing. It's yeah. incredibly charming. I loved it. <laughs> and The pictures, speaking of that, of those camouflage parts yes. are amazing. It's just
1: basically, like, clear robot shape with stuff on
2: it. Yes. Yeah, that one on page 43, I just want it on my wall. I think it's gorgeous. Real good. It's, it's Roz with flowers oh, and yes. like plants just covering her. It's gorgeous.
1: But that sort of, um, that, that attitude of like meeting nature where it is makes me think of, uh, some philosophy that I've been reading on for the book that I'm writing. Um, that's, uh, generally falls under the post-humanism umbrella, Um, but I'm specifically thinking of object-oriented ontology and alien phenomenology. Um, So, if you're a programmer, uh, object-oriented ontology is basically just named as a joke um, on programmers. Uh, It's not... um, It's not... It doesn't have anything to do with object-oriented programming. It's the idea of, like... So, ontology is... The theory of what things exist and what sorts of things exist and what things are real. Um, And object oriented ontology basically says humans are not a prime subject that gets to decide everything about the world. Object oriented ontology, very, very high level, is saying everything, and a thing might be a glass or a person or an animal or uh, uh, the concept of love, or a planet. All of these are in a, in a flat ontology, where these are all things that exist, and they all are different from each other. And there's always some aspect of them that's that's inaccessible to other objects. And they're sort of their existence is defined in part by their relation to other things. So like, a glass to a human is a thing that can be used to store water. A human to an animal is maybe food, or it can maybe be uh, something that kills it, or you know, all these things. And like, things are not defined by their relationship to humans, and things don't really fit into easy categorizable taxonomies. Uh, so that's object-oriented ontology. Uh, Graham Harmon and Levi Bryant sort of did that, came up with that those concepts, and then ian bogos builds on that uh in his book alien phenomenology or what it's like to be a thing uh which is phenomenology is distinct from ontology phenomenology is like what what are experiences like what what is it like to experience things and like what 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 things exist as experiences as opposed to as objects um and uh, Bogost basically is like, this whole flat ontology thing is cool, but it still kind of has the problem of like, well, what it's like, what do we do with that then? And Bogost is like, well, you can because things are defined by the relationships. You can think about uh, the experience of a thing that may or may not have experiences, right? You can think about what it's like to be a rock. You can think about what it's like to be uh, uh, a squirrel and these are um like you could not only think about them but it, it is in some way true that these things have experiences and opinions and relationships to each other and this book um like is definitely taking like a you know the the wild robot is saying, the wild robot is doing talking animal stories, right? It's doing fable stuff, but also it's presenting animals as creatures with interiority that is not human interiority, and it's it's kind of saying the robot is just another thing in this forest. It's not like the king of the forest or the queen of the forest in this case. Uh, <laughs> she's not like. She's not someone who gets to decide how things relate to each other. She's trying to fit, figure out her place in this island of bears and trees and rocks and ponds and beavers and uh, storms. And, like, all these things are just interacting with each other on even footing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, like, that's different from how survival books normally get into that.
0: Yeah, there's even a part in which uh, I think the the narrator says that that Braz is another kind of life, artificial yes. life. Yes.
1: Yeah, real early. Uh, like it's normally yeah. that sort of thing would be like the conclusion of like she finally <laughs> realizes that she's alive. It's like it's like how she <laughs> introduces herself. She's like, "I'm alive but not like you."
2: Well, I guess I want to understand the um the object-oriented ontology and alien phenomenology concept is is it sort of decentering humans is sort of the point of under like knowledge construction is that
1: yeah and that's kind of the ge-
2: part of the idea of it that's
1: kind of the general posthumanism thing and the way that it does this the way that it that that these philosophies um remove human primacy remove the the role of human as eternal subject that gets to decide what's what is by sort of figuring out like it's kind of saying, try and think of objects, all objects, humans as an object and all other objects as the same sort of object as humans are. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the, you know, you can say that water wants to run downhill. And like that, an- that doesn't need to be anthropomorphization, Right. We talk Mm -hmm. about anthropomorphizing things as this bad thing of like, think of this as a person. And it's like, you shouldn't think of the water as human, but you can think of it as wanting things. And sort of alien phenomenology is is sort of saying, I, I, I may be grossly misrepresenting Bogos here, but the way I understand it is that it's saying things can desire stuff and that doesn't make them human. And it doesn't necessarily make them people. Although the animals in this book absolutely are people, but like, (laughs) like, the, there are things, it's, it's about like detaching certain experiences and relationships from the concept of humanity and saying like, we can talk about motivations and agency of things that otherwise, that, 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 like, the, the, standard way of thinking is that like these things don't want things these things don't do things they are only acted upon and uh both object oriented ontology and alien phenomenology say no they absolutely do things to each other like the door keeps you out of a house the door <laughs> right like like you you are acted upon by things and it's not the fact that you're human doesn't mean that you can somehow define the you universe
2: So I have a really important question Mm -hmm. now. Do you feel like you could help me write about that with an audience of third grade teachers (laughs) to like be able to talk about sort of post human pedagogy?
1: Uh, I don't know much about pedagogy, (laughs) but sure.
2: Mm -hmm. I think I have a new project for the project (laughs) list. (laughs) Is this before or after
0: the article that (laughs) that was discussed about? I think it's that article. (laughs) Excellent.
2: Okay. (laughs) I just thought, oh, this would be really actually better. Than the direction I was already thinking. <laughs> okay, let's go on the survival tangent.
0: So, as I was reading this book and I was thinking about the the structures of survival books and how they tend to go, the first thing that came to mind was um, the video game series Shelter, oh, in which yeah. you are you are playing a lynx, I think, a, the, a the wild cat. cat. Yeah, and um at least the one that i played you are starting off having a litter of kittens and yeah, i think
1: you played the second one on stream that's like yes. the first one's about a badger family i think and maybe the second oh, one's okay. about uh, a lynx family
0: yes so that's the one i played and uh it starts sad <laughs> but and it gets sadder it's more hopeful actually even yeah, like get your status. cubs
1: eaten by a hawk and stuff like that
0: yeah whoa whoa whoa. yeah, yeah you lose an, an You you lose a kitten like immediately
2: it was mm-hmm. so sad but i was about to want to play it but now i do not I, d- I i
0: do recommend it i not don't necessarily recommend it uh you know easily but for one the art style of that game is not unlike the way the art works in this book and peter brown's art style of this sort of Uh, particularly kind of flat style like some of the some of the coloring choices well some of the shading choices um line up but that is a survival game about keeping your children safe keeping yourself safe helping everyone grow up that like doesn't that also isn't interested in building technology or being being some sort of human cat um you are a cat that pounces and attacks and so on so anyway that was a, a passing thought as i was reading this yeah,
1: you can kind of contrast that with a game like i mean minecraft or any of the the survival yes. games the woods i think is a, is a good example don't starve or it's like mm-hmm. those are games about finding resources that you can use to separate yourself from nature and free yourself from the connections of the natural world and just shelter isn't like that right neither is the wild robot
0: Regrettably, the second thing I thought of was the Clan of the Cave Bear series. Oh yes, <laughs> which I have read the <laughs> Lucy's face on camera. I'm sorry.
1: Lucy's <laughs> just shaking their head.
2: I'll, I'll never.
1: <laughs> you <will> always regret
2: <laughs> introducing
1: Lissa to that uh, to that series.
2: Is, this is my cross to bear. <laughs> It
0: is a gift that keeps giving. Um, So I've only only read the first two books in the series, and what's one of the
2: things that's (laughs) no? Just to be clear, that is like seven hundred pages at least. (laughs) So much
1: (laughs) huge books, in which relatively little happens.
2: Oh well. Oh, that's not true. Well.
0: yeah <laughs> people's memory of what happens in those books it turns out is different than what actually does mm-hmm. but one thing that's particularly notable about the series is that the main character who is a child who loses her parents in a snowstorm or some other sort of storm um and she ends up getting picked up by other type of human that's not like her these are like and ghost- these are Cro-Magnon, Cro-Magnons.
1: caveman yeah. type people
0: exactly And as this is proceeding, and especially as you move into the second book where she's by herself, this girl is reinventing, she's bootstrapping the entire technological chain of humanity. Like, and part of it is like, oh, you know, this is why this branch of humanity survived. But the, the, the ways in which she builds shelter, the ways in which she perceives objects, the ways in which she's able to, to tame horses and befriend wild lions, like and use, urine to, make shampoo. use <laughs> urine to make shampoo. It's such a it's such a technological fantasy that it is. It's just a huge contrast with this book, and the both characters start innocent. Both of them have some knowledge about.
1: This is this they're... is uh, Raz from Wild Robot, and what's yes. the
0: Clan the Cave Bear? Isla, Isla, yes. Um, oh, maybe Isla. No, right? I, you shouldn't listen to me. I, I think the audiobook, which I do not recommend, is the way, is the way to read those books. Uh, I
1: just because they're long.
0: <laughs> because they're long, and because um, the narrator's voice is very. I couldn't. <laughs> it's very I sweet it's very oh, sweet okay. for what happens in the book um but uh let's see where's that oh both of them have some base knowledge as they're coming into the world and as they're learning how things work but they go in such different directions clan clan of the cave bear is very interested in and in being genius and being the smartest and being the most clever and, you know, devising these solutions, which is much more traditional sort of survival story in one way or another, um, even though it has a a certain pretense of living in harmony with nature. Right. It's, mm-hmm. She hasn't she hasn't tamed the horse. The horse is her friend. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I think it, it contrasts very starkly with with Wild Robot in the sense of like, you don't have to be the cleverest. This wasn't. A, you weren't this wasn't a book about someone solving the Rubik's Cube of how to survive. Yeah, she it was she step learns, by step.
1: She learns <laughs> camouflage from a stick insect. She learns uh how to build houses from a beaver. She has mm-hmm. prosthetics made by various critters, she learns gardening from a deer, like
2: she learns social manners from someone. Yeah. Was it the the possum? That was the possum. Yeah, yeah.
0: So anyway, I, you know, it. I have now, I now live a life where there's a solid 15 to 25% of books I read now that unfortunately remind me in some fashion (laughs) of Clan of the Cape Bear, and I'm happy to share it with you.
1: (laughs) Anyway, so we've got the big topics uh, discussed. Does anyone have uh, lightning round topics of other interesting things you spotted in the book?
0: Yes, so one quick topic I wanted to bring up is, it ties into everything we've talked about, of course, but the idea of what comes naturally to people Hmm. in this world, and what requires practice. And I'm thinking particularly of Raza's son. Who, when the flying lessons start,
1: who is a goose? Remember, everyone. The robot son is a goose.
0: Yes, (laughs) the robot son is a goose. A very adorable sounding goose. A good goose. Very precocious.
2: Yes, a good good goose. I just love that robot son. (laughs) (laughs) He's
0: so great. Um, And when when he's starting to fly, there's a point at which he shouts, "Like, look, mom, I'm a natural. Mm -hmm. I'm a natural." And then as he's learning these tricks, even in like the same page, as he's learning different techniques, so you got to keep practicing, let's keep practicing. And this sort of, it's not even intention, there's not even a conflict in the story between this idea that I'm a natural at something, and I must practice something, which is not how our society currently works. (laughs) Yeah, we have this idea that we are naturally gifted, or naturally You know, a a a great musician naturally, then you require far less practice, or don't need to practice, or you shouldn't need to practice, or whatever. Um, And this this book puts all this aside. This says like we have things that are sort of fundamental drives, whether that is to survive and not get too wet or get hit by electricity, um, or to fly or migrate or you know to build in certain ways and you still hone those things you still those things still change and evolve as you learn
2: um, to whatever degree of focus so I love it I would just add something to the triangle or make it a triangle maybe because you know there's practice and then there's this sort of natural or innate ability but I think this book argues there's a third angle on the triangle Mm -hmm. and that's like study or observation like yes, because yes. you know that's how Roz operates, right? Like she camouflages or listens, and you know learns language, and then she has her and her her goose son watch <laughs> the birds. They watch how the geese fly, right, for a long time. And I don't. I mean, it certainly isn't explicit in the book but i think there is a real implication that it's his study that makes him so good at it because by the Mm -hmm. end he's the leader of the geese right even though he Mm -hmm. doesn't even have a familial unit among the geese that's
1: leader in the sense of leading a flying v i don't know that he has like political power just just for those who haven't read the book
0: yeah i think i had lumped that in with practice in in the sense of Practice not just being the repetitiveness, but also the trying stuff out and seeing what's there. But I think you're right. It's it's also useful to separate that out in terms of how do you know what to practice? You, you see that through observation uh, and you don't just naturally know what to try. You have to think about it and observe it. So, yeah. So there's my, I just thought it was delightfully nuanced and not binary. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I love it that you brought it up too. I mean, it, it actually I was I'm really interested in the question of design because it come up comes up multiple times in the novel. Mm-hmm. You know, um it it's they'll say um this the I think the goose son bright bill is designed for swimming, right? And uh-huh. designed for flying and this creature is designed for this. And then when Ro, when Roz plants her garden, she was designed to work with plants. And there was another part, she was not designed <laughs> to mm-hmm. do this. And mm-hmm. that's an interesting, it's an interesting word choice. It's certainly uh, connotatively rich to constantly say that creatures or people are designed for something or not designed for it. I almost used
0: the quote as my intro, but the uh, perhaps I'm simply made to help
2: people out
0: or something like mm-hmm. that. That's sort mm-hmm. of, yeah,
2: I, I like that. I think it stop it, it, it is able to, it's very clear that it's not saying something about intelligent design or mm-hmm. God, because Roz's makers are literally <laughs> like they're people, right?
1: Yeah. Roz literally was designed <laughs> right. or Roz's body and brain
2: were you know certainly it talks about how animals are designed for this or that as well which mm-hmm. is interesting I actually this is just a little like a sub note about that I really thought a long time about how point of view works in this book mm. Because yeah. it's not just following Roz, right? Like, because you get mm-hmm. the um, perspective of the other robots when they come and other animals on the island. I think it's really centered on the island. Your point of view cannot leave the island in this book. Yeah. yeah. Because you don't, like, we can't go with Bright Bill. We can only hear the story that Bright Bill tells when he returns. We don't ever see the factories. We don't ever see where the robots are from. We can only hear what happens on the island. So I think that's the the sort of point of view restriction of the novel
1: when the when the ship spots the bonfire I thought that we got an image of the ship because
2: mm-hmm. the ship is passing the island at that point so yeah. that's in the realm of our perspective
0: yeah there are two ships we see
2: because
0: mm-hmm. we see the first or I think we see it and Brightbill doesn't notice it maybe and then we see the one at the bonfire as it's passing by and it keeps going
1: yeah, but we don't we don't get a picture of it. We get a picture of some of the things that Bright Bill sees uh, off of the island as he's telling the story. But we don't get to see the we see the initial container ship. I think that Roz comes mm-hmm. from. But we don't mm-hmm. get to see the one that spots the bonfire and ultimately gets the repo robots there.
2: It's on, We do um, see a second ship.
1: Oh, it's okay. on page
2: 219. They were so busy singing and laughing and dancing that they didn't see the cargo ship as it sliced past the island. But the ship saw them. It saw the towering bonfire. It saw the robot. And then it quietly continued through the darkness.
1: Yeah, so we get it in text, but not in drawing.
2: Page 117
0: has is the beginning of chapter 40. It's called The Ship.
1: That's so
0: right. that is where we, we first see and don't notice i think oh no it, it comes up yeah they... bright bill says mama what is that thing And rosa's computer brain found the right word that's a ship which is i think how bright then has the vocabulary when they go to the city to call everything ships <laughs> oh yeah,
2: yeah.
1: flying ships and rolling ships and
2: mm-hmm. ships on the ground ships in the yeah. water it's pretty charming that illustration also supports my um idea because it's it's clearly from the island that you see that ship in the picture
1: mm-hmm. yeah
2: yep that's how if anybody is curious <laughs> that is also the sort of uh point of view of uh in my opinion tony morrison's beloved i think we can only hear the point of view of any character who is in the house 124 bluestone road and like so if you ever wonder when you're reading that novel why do you never hear the point of view of um I can't remember his name, Setha's husband or these other characters, if they're never there at the house, you never can hear their perspective because you can only hear from people who come to that house. So anyway, I love that sort of shit. (laughs) (laughs) So another thing I wanted to talk about is the concept of found families. A Uh, a classic of genre fiction. I'm a sucker Classic. for it i love family stuff and i think you know i think the concept of family is so powerful and it's so beautiful but then a lot of i think stories that um depict traditional families um i think some of those depictions can i think can do harmful things right i think there's a lot of space there for problems that I mean, we can talk about more if y'all want to. But I love the stories about found families um, because, well, I'll just, like, some of my favorite stories are found families. Like um, God, Guardians of the Galaxy, which I know is a Marvel property, but I do yeah, love don't, it. Don't go
1: a, see it. but yeah, yeah, I don't watch it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it's a found family story. Um, my roommate is a cat, which I'm pretty sure is not struck, and you can watch. It is not anime <laughs> it's a story of a found family uh avatar the last airbender i think you can probably watch um maybe maybe not if uh, yeah i'm not sure the mandalorian you probably shouldn't watch but it's another one <laughs> um In these stories, families consciously choose each other and continue choosing each other. And that's something I love about the Wild Robot. Roz chooses to raise Bright Bill and he chooses to be her son, even after joining the geese and doing geese stuff. (laughs) And even after she tells him the truth of how she killed basically those geese and those eggs and it's actually not even drama, right? (laughs) In the book. It's like, here's the thing that happened, you know, and and now I'm your robot mom. And there's a lot more,
0: there's a lot more drama about uh, Roz's button turning Mm -hmm. Roz off or on again. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more drama about that than there is about the
2: sort of original biological family. And I, I just... I feel like stories like this are just so important for children to read. I'm sorry. (laughs) Because, you know, like, families are complicated. And, you know, um, I know I grew up, like like, I mean, it's so trite now to grow up with divorced parents, but, like, I grew up with, like, but you all read all these books, and it's like, oh, everybody has a mom and a dad, and they live at home, and, you know, Mm -hmm. like, all this sort of traditional things, and it's not the life. I wouldn't even say it's the normal thing for anybody anymore, you know, like, families are complicated, you know, and sometimes you just have a robot mom, and sometimes (laughs) you have a cat, (laughs) and, like, I mean, and, like, you know, families are complicated, and I love a book that, like, offers the space for that kind of complicated family dynamic for children to be able to read that, you know? And I feel like there's something that's really hopeful and powerful for children to be like, you know, this goose has a robot mom. <laughs> <laughs> <She's> like,
1: this <laughs> is a single immigrant mother with an adoptive son. Yeah. And it goes great.
0: There's a, a moment in which, uh, bright bill has been a little a little jerk and ross goes to the old goose that lives out in the lake in the pond and is like hey i'm having trouble and loud wing loud something uh the that that goose is like well you know how they are at this age and ross says no, please. No, I don't. Please yeah. tell me how they are. <laughs> at age. Please tell me how they are at that age. <laughs> please tell me. And then later passes that on when, mm-hmm. oh gosh, I don't remember is what Is the mama there? Yes, is the mama there. Oh, that's bear. right. Mm-hmm. And, and Roz goes, well, you know how they are at that age. And it, one, it makes me think of the whole acting idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, the very learned behavior of parenting. It's not speaking of things you must practice and observe, right?
1: Yeah so something that that shows up a lot in children's literature that I think is deployed really effectively here is refrain and repetition. Uh, a lot of especially younger, so this is this is for like middle schoolers I guess or older elementary school students, um, but like especially with, for like young kids, books often have repetition in them. so like you know the the are you my mother would be a classic example of like, they this is it a baby bird goes around saying are you my mother are you my mother are you my mother and because because children's books are often read aloud with a child that that kind of provides a hook for the child to be participatory in the process where like when they recognize the line they can say it with the parent and and sort of be be involved in the process that way and this is for older audience
0: I'd say not to be confused with the horrifically scary doctor who episode in which there are a bunch of children going around asking, are you my mummy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they are in fact wearing gas masks and a very tragic situation. Different I mean, yeah. question.
2: <laughs> children are terrifying and doctor who is yeah. well aware of it. <laughs> yes.
1: And that, yeah, like that shows up that this idea of like repetition and, and, and refrain shows up in a lot of, a lot of non-child focused uh, literature, but, um, a lot of it that happens here is weirdly ironic we've talked about some of it already um, it when it talks about at first the first raws and then later uh, off to some animals um, it says uh, she felt something like annoyance or she felt something like laughter she, or amusement or she felt something like X and it's because like the book is coyly being like well we all know robots don't have emotions but She's feeling something, and it's something a lot like happiness. And you know what's a lot like happiness? And the book doesn't say this explicitly, but happiness is a lot like happiness. Um, mm-hmm. And likewise, uh, you get that line that, you, that we talked about clearly, so and so was not designed to do X, or so and so was designed to fly. And it's like that clearly there is very insistent and is ironically insistent because. They're not designed none of these things all of these entities are good at this thing and could you know like are capable of these things but like no one designed any of these creatures to do any of these tasks except possibly Roz was maybe designed to care for plants uh, that that's possible um but like the every many times when you see a phrase repeated over and over in this book you're supposed to question that phrase um the as you might know or you might already know this lines always precede something that's kind of questioned as you might know robots don't feel emotion or you might already know this but you know robots don't have families that that, i don't know if that's a specific example but that's the sort of way it's deployed um and like that's that's a cool cool like writing trick that happens in the book but there's there's one bit of repetition that i spotted i noted the first time this line appears because it's a really powerful line and then it happens again later um and it's always with regard to fire and it's uh animals will move forward eager to feel more warmth and then move back afraid of feeling too much and Mm -hmm. That, that appears twice, once in the initial like teaching animals how fire is, and then, or maybe it's in the winter. Anyway, I mean, it's once inside and then once at the at the bonfire, um, mm-hmm. and and that I don't think is ironic. I think, but it is kind of talking about something other than what it's literally talking about, because uh, I mean, it's it's there's a there's that wonderful essay about uh, in order to experience the joy of being loved we must submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known and like Mm. to to be vulnerable and be part of a community both has warmth but also has the risk of being hurt and feeling too much and like by being friends with roz when the robot when the evil robots show up and try and capture roz they the animals have exposed themselves to that risk like either the literal risk of like being killed by a robot or the sort of emotional risk of having their friend leave. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, I, I love the, the words that are repeated that the phrases that get repeated in this book are very evocative and r- really stuck in me. So I was able to immediately go like, Oh, they're saying that line again. That's interesting.
0: And the, the whole, I think Roz is meant to grow gardens thing mm-hmm. exchange it, it ends with, perhaps I am simply meant to help others, which is presumably a reference to Roz's actual human intended design, right?
1: Or possibly, like, the purpose of all sapient beings.
0: Sure, sure, sure. But I mean, yeah. I think it's probably a tongue-in-cheek reference to the fact that there's a robot working in a greenhouse
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: all the time. <laughs> good writer
1: so in addition to the the all the literary discussion and the philosophical discussion uh about like the nature of existence and so on uh we're also just big utopian sci-fi fans so we're gonna head to 10 forward and we're going to talk about geeky stuff um i want to start with uh robots in sci-fi and uh what they mean what robots mean in sci- science fiction um and because we we like i think that the popular imagination or and certainly the way that i thought about like how robots work in sci-fi is that like people came up with this cool idea for a metal man and then later someone looked at metal man and was like huh you know there's something to this maybe i could use this as a metaphor for oppression or enslavement or labor or something like that um and that's in fact not the case uh robots the the from the first idea of robots robots have been about oppression and exploitation and labor so there is a a uh an illusion that i don't know if y'all noticed um so Roz's full name is razum which Mm -hmm. is a direct reference to the first work ever about robots the work to coin the word robot uh Rossum's universal robots which is a play uh, oh, cool. and in the play yeah oh. so r-u-r is that it's r-u-r colon rossom's universal robots and in, in this play and it's from like the it, it's it's earlier than you think I, it's the early 20th century i want to say um the robots in the play aren't like mechanical people. They're like genetically engineered people. They've they figured out how to make organisms out of a different f- sort of organic matter. And because they are different, these organisms, these people, because they are just like straight up humans, indistinguishable from humans if you look at them, um, are they're they're enslaved. They are forced to to work, and then they in the, in the course of the play, they insist that they are people, that they have emotions, they revolt and rebel. They kill a bunch of humans. There's a tenuous state at the end where like the robots are trying to figure out how to build their own society. A robot falls in love with a human. Like all of the stuff that we think of is like, Oh, this is what clever science fiction is thinking about when it thinks about robots. Is just like, that's what robots are in the, in the imagination of sci-fi. Um, it reminds me of a great tweet uh, by an account called The Jaded Guy uh, that's imagining this conversation between uh, game designer and writers David Cage and Yoko Taro. David Cage made Detroit Beyond Human, which is a game about uh, robot uprising. Yoko Taro made Nier Automata, as well as a bunch of other games, uh, which is about like androids and machines fighting each other and whether or not, you know, what, what feelings they have, notably near automata is a game where everyone insists that androids don't have feelings and they do um and that this conversation is uh david cage asks this profound question can a robot learn to be human and then yokotaro says can a human learn to be human and cage is mystified and doesn't understand that this is like this is the interesting question is that robots let us talk about humans and what what it means to be a person um and like that's that's what the wild robot is is doing here um uh it's it's like clearly referring to i don't think i mentioned rur written by uh, a czech i think playwright named uh, karel Chapek. and like the wild robot is just continuing Chapek's project like artificial people tell us what people mean and like this is this is doing, doing that. And like, it's, it's definitely got this surface reading of, Hey, cu- cute robot, right? Children like robots. Robots are cool. Robots are big metal people. Um, but also like robots are a way for us to be like, what would it be mean to be a person who did not need to eat? What does it mean to be a person who um, can just stand and wait and watch and learn And be completely emotionless and learn the language of the animals what does it mean to be a person who slave catchers can show up and bring you back to your owner so-called owner Mm -hmm. um and that's that's cool i mean it's it's super neat to see kids you know this this story for literal children that's like hey robots are deep we need to think about robots
2: (laughs) Hey, speaking of historical robots, did you think that there was the implication that Roz, um, I don't know, has a positronic brain or relies on Asimov's three laws of robots?
1: Possibly, yeah, because it, it, Roz can't commit violence, which mm-hmm. isn't isn't specifically the rule, the, the first law, but it's close.
2: And she can't, and she has to protect herself. Thus, you know, yeah. she can't go into the water. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And and that that's I think we get a deplo- deployment of she felt something like fear there. It's like well of course she couldn't really feel fear, but she did you know had the sense of self preservation and wanted to keep on living. And it, it <laughs> uses the word living there. Uh huh. So yeah.
2: I feel like everybody has found Asimov's robot laws of robotics to be like inescapable.
1: <laughs> I mean. Asimov, so if you don't know what we're talking about, Asimov's three laws of robotics, one is robot can't harm a human or through an action cause them to cause harm, or cause them to come to come harm. Uh, second law is uh, a robot must preserve itself except as it conflicts with the first law. Uh,
0: actually, no, I think second the laws law. Yeah. law is must uh, follow.
1: Third law is, so second law is must follow orders except as it conflicts with not hurting humans. And then three is must preserve oneself except as it conflicts with the other two laws. And like... correct. Those to me feel like rules for not being afraid of robots. Oh, yeah, a hundred percent. Those are rules that society makes to, because robots are scary because people who you are exploiting are scary.
2: Oh, but Asimov a hundred percent understood that.
1: Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. That's what Asimov <laughs> is doing. That's what yeah. irobot Robot is all about. How, like, hey, mm-hmm. how come y'all don't realize that these robots are people?
2: Also, mm-hmm. um. The Naked Sun. I feel like that's what that book is about. If anybody wants to read a little Asimov. Uh, So,
0: on a not unrelated note, uh, I really appreciated what felt like a tiny bit of a twist, but not unexpected given the book, of where, you know, we know that Roz is a special robot. Despite the fact that Roz has a number introduced as Rozum in Unit thir- 7134, right?
1: And she's one of 500 on her ship and one of five who washed up and the only one who survived.
0: Uh-huh. Exactly. So Roz is a special girl. So despite the fact that she has a number, we we see Roz as an individual immediately.
2: Oh, yeah. She's another special magical girl. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've had yeah. two special magical girls so far. We both have. of
1: whom learn the language of things thought you that, of oh, things that shit. we think can't communicate with each other
2: drop the mic i did great <laughs> <laughs> um
0: but what i appreciated is that when we see additional robots when we meet mm-hmm. Reco one two and three they each manage to distinguish themselves Mm -hmm. we are not meeting exactly three off of an assembly line even though they present a unified front initially the moment they split up they become people um and i think the book just does a great job like our expectation for numbered robots is one thing and this book's like nope can't still can't have it you didn't have it with and you can't have it now um, yeah,
1: they, they say that Roz is defective or something for, mm-hmm. for like, not wanting to go back and work. But, like, we don't ever have the implication that's actually the case. There's nothing fundamentally different about Roz. It's just, like, she had the opportunity to become part of a community without exploitation.
2: Exactly. exactly. So I think she's, she's defective because she won't come. I mean, right? Case, yeah. That's I mean, she's, she's not behaving
1: as... The, as society, as human society, wants her to, but like it's not due to some like it's not that she got a chip busted, it's not that she had a an error in her programming. It's that she's e- expressing her agency that all of these robots have. Like all these robots could say no, and probably get right. destroyed and dismantled and reprogrammed, but she's one who has the opportunity to to say that without immediate repercussions
2: just like everybody in the three mandatory institutions that we have in our modern society Foucault argues that schools <laughs> prisons and mental institutions are our three mandatory institutions so it's no different like I mean I think it's no different right it's a it, it, there she's only defective because they say you're defective because you're not coming with us this is evidence of a defect just mm-hmm. like you know they used to, um, put women in mental institutions because they were hysterical.
1: And where hysterical usually meant not fulfilling their social role, like not being willing to be a homemaker, not being willing to have children with their husband, etc. etc.
2: Um, well so everybody else has gone deep, so I'm gonna <laughs> go shallow. <laughs> I'm gonna pull a Michelle Obama here except for the opposite. Um <laughs> I'd like to nerd out about um, shit. Uh, (laughs) Last episode we got tentacles. Now we got poop. (laughs) Okay, but like, did that 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 part about the cheerful pooping? I just super loved it. So what happens in the um, in the novel is first Roz gets a home. She needs a lodge for um, her her goose baby to live in, to be safe. (laughs) So the beavers help her build a home. And then they say, Hey, you know, you should talk to the deer and they can help you with the gardening. And so the, um, the deer comes and she looks around. She's like, yes, give me a nice garden. And she helps Roz get it started. And she said, now what we're going to need everybody to do is come here and poop. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's like two pages. Uh, here it is. Tawny. Tawny's the deer. And She's like, um, oh, it's page 93. Please leave your droppings around the nest. The more droppings, the richer the soil, the healthier the garden. As you can imagine, Tommy's request got everyone's attention. (laughs) Everybody loves this. They all want to come and poop. And it's so cheerful. We're life. happy to help,
1: said yeah, two smiling weasels them. after finishing up their business. It was our pleasure, said a flock of smiling sparrows before they flew away. I shouldn't be much longer now, said a smiling turtle as he slowly made his contribution.
2: After some pleasant conversation, each neighbor would choose their spot, leave their droppings, and be on their way, and always with a smile- <laughs> Mhm and and skipping back to that first paragraph the place
0: was soon crawling with woodland creatures curious to hear more about the garden project and just like that the robot was meeting her neighbors the plan to help her make friends was already starting to work
2: yeah like and amazing pooping centric this i think Although, I, I mean, I, I, I actually laughed out loud in reading this part. I thought it was hysterical. Like, I guess I just read too much children's literature because children really do love this poop stuff. Like, they're super in for it. Um, So I know any child reading this part is going to love it. Um, But I think it accomplishes a, co- a couple of really interesting things. I mean, one, I definitely think this book has a lot to say about sort of natural cycles you know like this is about like making a garden and um cultivation and i mean i think there's something that's really (laughs) that's kind of cool uh about that and and to point out that pooping's a part of that cycle of natural stuff and and then i also think we in the united states i think i mean we're a little bit a little bit a little bit
1: Poop phobic?
2: Well yeah, we're a little bit weird about bodies and bodily functions and pooping and it's this whole big private thing. So to have it here in this book, be just like, hey, how are you? I am here to poop to help you out. You're welcome. Have a great day. (laughs) I just think there's something marvelous about it because it's so like counter to our culture. And and probably in a like this is probably healthier. I mean, for mm-hmm. the people in the community, you know, to not be like, oh, let me find a place, you know, to hide and poop. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't know. I just thought I one I thought it was delightful, and two I think it's doing some shit. <laughs> well,
1: there there are two other examples of of pooping that I can think of in the book that are that you're you're nodding, Lissa. Are you thinking yeah, the ones yeah. that I'm thinking of?
0: I was thinking of the way it's the way it's weaponized later. Yes, right yep. when mm-hmm. when and the, earlier Reckos, and earlier Rico Reco? whichever the the attacking robots are. Um,
1: so so initially, yeah, initially mm-hmm. as Roz is like just kind of flailing around the the island, getting attacked by animals and like tripping over shit. Um, she like I think tries to greet some birds, and they answer by just pooping in her face, like mm-hmm. birds do, and then like then she makes friends through pooping and then later comes the the rico confrontation that you're talking about
0: yep in which uh it is thinking about like our the earlier bit we talked about like productive um productive violence right productive struggle uh leveraging the same <laughs> the same tools that allow the garden to to grow and flourish to uh defend against attackers
1: how do oh, they what do they do to the robot? It's it's really bind
2: to the robot. The robot can't see because of the bird droppings. Right. Yeah. So this is a robot that
0: goes into the woods, gets stuck in mud, turns around and starts going back, and in that process gets pooped on, can't see, comes out and runs into a bull moose that wrecks them. Yeah. Uh and breaks them up into into parts. Uh a, a surprisingly violent end. Like the violence is not gory, but it is like it's dismemberment, right? These things are mm-hmm. ripped limb from limb. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the maybe the one thing that this book thinks is genuinely different about robots is that you can take them apart and put them back together again. Like
0: mm-hmm. robots
1: have interchangeable parts in a way that I- that animals do
2: not, except for the lizard that.
1: Yeah, well, right. That dropped its tail. I Hail. take it back.
2: Raz so actually to, to escape <laughs> gets a wooden prosthetic foot too. Mm-hmm. I mean, like that. I mean, people have prosthetics.
1: Yeah, I stand corrected. I'd forgotten about the lizard story. Something that that is real quick that we haven't mentioned is that this thing has a whole lot of chapters. It's got eighty chapters. Some of the chapters are one paragraph long. Many of them are one page long. And just about every chapter title is a noun, which kind of fits into my alien or my object-oriented ontology thing of Mm. like the chapters are things like the gosling or the first flight. And very rarely they'll be like, the gosling grows. There'll be actions taken by nouns. Um, And the last rifle it's it's all of these chapters are about objects things in the world of the of the the uh things in the world of the fiction and there's not like flowery language there it's not like the key to flying is blah blah blah, blah, blah. it's the gosling flies
2: it, i did I really did like the um way the chapters were not consistent how there were really short ones and then some longer ones like I like an organic chapter.
1: I liked when the geese got a gun.
2: <laughs> that was so wild.
1: <laughs> some geese got a gun and shot a robot to death.
0: Was it the vultures or the geese mm, I
1: thought it was uh, the geese
2: because they were the, the ones geese who pulled saw... a trigger. <laughs> The okay. geese were the one who knew how to use a gun because remember their goose leader had gotten That's shot right. and they were away with the humans. In fact, I believe the only things humans do in this book is shoot a goose and try to steal back Roz. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: there's, there's a lot of like using earlier skills later. Uh, the, the, the geese learn how to shoot guns from humans. Uh, Roz uses camouflage in the final battle against the robots that she used mm-hmm. very, very early on to learn animal language. These are straight up laser guns, by the way. These are like,
2: yeah, they were clearly Melting in metal. the sci-fi
1: future. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. No, it's Pretty a cool. sci-fi novel. I mean, I, I think in a way, kind of ironically, because the book is sort of hatchet, in many mm-hmm. ways, but it is set <laughs> in a future world.
0: Woo! I'm nervous about this one, y'all. All right. So, at the end of each episode, we pick the next thing we're watching based on or reading or whatever based on a, a connection from this book this episode had information transfer as sort of a crucial component hmm. to the community and survival so next time we are reading a book called the collapsium by will mccarthy
1: huh i don't think i, I know this what's it about no
0: nothing it is a, uh, it's from the year 2000. It's a science fiction novel about a telecommunication ring that is made of something called collapsium, which are mini black, mini black holes, mini as in like micro uh, black holes. And this telecommunication, telecommunication ring is attacked and pushed into the sun. And so people have to collaborate to figure out how to save their network of of what keeps society up and running. And it sounds interesting. I I see some reviews saying, you know, maybe the pacing is a little weird. We'll find out. We will read to find out. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited. Oh. I, I love physics science fiction. <laughs> it will probably be, you know, uh more in the hard sci-fi category than <laughs> what we have read. I mean, it will be, for sure. Uh, more classic sort of sci-fi. So we'll see. Um, It should be available, ebook or physical, whichever your preference is.
1: Awesome. So next time we'll be discussing Collapsium on Before the Future came. You can find links and show notes at beforethefuture.space. That is a real web address that will really work. You can put in your browser, beforethefuture.space. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, uh, you, we have comments set up there on each episode, uh, where you can also find show notes. We do work cited for, for stuff that we've mentioned along the way. We'll have both Bogost philosophy and uh, video games, and all sorts of other stuff. The Hatchet will be on there. Um, uh, if you don't want to comment, you want to con- contact us individually. You can write us at on screen at beforethefuture.space uh, and we're also on co-host as before the future game i think cohostorg hostorg yes. slash before the future game and there's uh there's an ask feature on co-host so if you have questions for us you can send us an ask on co-host you don't even have to be logged in and we'll answer it there
2: we're also on tiktok
1: oh yeah we've got a tiktok <laughs> we've got uh, and an
2: instagram we're an on instagram. instagram don't ask me what it is on instagram i'm logged out of everything <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, search for Before the Future Came on, on those platforms. We are not on Twitter. We are only individually are on Twitter. So
0: I'm Melissa Avery Weir, and I blog at urson.net, and I'm on Mastodon at, as melissa
2: at urson.life. I'm Lucy Arnold, and sometimes blog at intertextualities.com.
1: And I'm Gregory Avery Weir, and you can find me at ludusnovus.net. Or you can read my stuff on co-host at co-host.org slash G-A-W. Our music is Let's Pretend by Josh Woodward, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening. We sure will all live happily ever after Surrounded by butterflies, children, and laughter it's a fairy tale story, so let's just pretend. Hallelujah, amen.
2: It's the end. Happily ever
1: after. The
2: end. You know what? I'm gonna start comparing everything I read to that one where she makes that headlamp no. and loves that bad boy. That's that's, that's how we're gonna even no, this okay, up. Okay, I'll <laughs> take it back. I'll
0: take it back. That's way more embarrassing. I'm
2: gonna compare everything I read to that book series.
1: I haven't recommended a bad book to either of y'all ever, so.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs>